Andy, page 424, if you're using the Bible in the seat back in front of you. I hope that video gave us a little reminder about how busy our lives can be sometimes and cause us to ask if it's good that they're that busy. When was the last time that you had time to slow down long enough to think about your life and to ask questions like, why am I here? And why does my life matter? And am I, filling the purpose, am I fulfilling the purpose for which God created me? Is my life counting? Is my life what I hoped it would be? Those can be scary questions. They can also be energizing questions. And questions which we long to ask, but often don't find time to ask often enough. Well, today's psalm takes us into that territory. It's titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And many students of the psalms have read this psalm, and they conclude that Moses most likely prayed this psalm at the end of his life. Remember, Moses had led God's people out of Egypt to the edge of the promised land, and there, because of the people's unbelief and their rebellion, God had prevented them from entering the land. And instead, they'd spent 40 years wandering around in the desert until that whole generation had died and Moses himself was about to die, having seen the promised land but failed to enter into it. Instead, a new generation would go in under the leadership of Moses' assistant Joshua. And if you read Psalm 90 with that scenario in mind, it makes a lot of sense. One of the best sermons I ever heard on this psalm was by Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkey, and I'm going to follow his basic outline as we walk through the psalm. Walkey points out that there's a cause and effect logic to this psalm. The psalm ends with an effect, and as you go backwards up into the psalm, you find the cause for that effect, and as you keep going, you find the cause for that cause, and so on until you get all the way back to the ultimate cause at the beginning of the psalm. So that's how we'll work through the psalm. We'll work through it backwards. So how does it end? Well, this psalm ends by answering the question we just raised, and that is, what is our life about anyway? How do we know if we're living it well? In verse 17, Moses asks God for what I think all of our hearts long for when we're quiet enough to pay attention. He asks for a life which is beautiful and a life which endures. Verse 17 let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Now this word translated favor is the Hebrew word naom, from which we get the name Naomi, which means pleasant. And naom can mean favor, but usually it means that which is good, beautiful, desirable, pleasant. That's the kind of life we all desire, isn't it? A life which is beautiful, a life which has an attractiveness to it. A life which is artfully and skillfully lived. And Moses says such a life comes from God. He prays, May, uh, let the favor, the naom of the Lord our God be upon us. Let God bestow our life with a pleasantness, with a beauty, with a favor so that we live a life well lived. Then the psalmist adds the request and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's our other longing, isn't it? It's for our life to endure, to, to count, to matter, for what we do in this life to last. 
Granted, our life is pretty short when we think about it. When, when we stack it up against the, the, the millions of people who are in the world today, not to mention the vastness of the universe and the eons of time, our life is small. But we want our little life to matter. Bruce Walkie puts it this way, we don't want our life to be like a, a drop of water on a summer sidewalk which is there for a moment and then just evaporates to nothing. Rather, we want our life to be like a drop of rain in a wood which pools with some other drops on a leaf which then drip into a stream which then join up into a river which then finally find themselves a great ocean. As someone once said, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And we long by God's grace for God to pick up that something and, and to weave it into his bigger tapestry, into his grand and beautiful story that, that God is working in the world. We want our lives to matter. We want our lives to last. And that's what Moses ends his prayer with. That's what he asks for his life and for the life of God's people to be. So how do we live such a life? A life which is beautiful. A life which endures. Well, let's look further up in the psalm to find the cause of that effect. And what do we find in verse 12? We find a heart of wisdom. That's what it takes to live a life which is beautiful and enduring. It takes a heart of wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is skill at living life. Back in the book of Exodus, God set his spirit on certain craftsmen and, and, and women, especially on two named Bazalel and Aholiab, and he gave them the skill, the wisdom, that's the word Exodus uses, to do master craftsmanship. For example, to, to select flax and, and to pull out the strands and to weave them into cloth and to dye that cloth and to measure and to cut and to fit that cloth to be fine garments for the priests to wear. These people had wisdom. They had, they had skill for doing art. But, but Moses here in our psalm is asking for more than the wisdom to, to craft a garment or an object. No, Moses is asking rather for wisdom to craft a life. He's asking for a heart of wisdom, a heart that can learn what ultimately matters in life, a heart which won't be distracted by the triviality which is hawked on TV every day, but which knows how to live one's life for what really matters. A heart which can look beyond the torrent of information that, that's fed to us each day through the internet and, and actually discern the meaning behind all of it. A heart of wisdom, that's what it takes to live a life which endures and a life which has beauty and pleasantness. So let's look further up into the psalm to find the cause of a heart of wisdom. Actually, we find it immediately in the first half of verse 12. Teach us to number our days. A heart of wisdom comes from numbering our days, from putting our life into perspective. You, like me, have probably attended funerals and heard what was said about the person who had died. And probably you thought sometimes, at some funerals, boy, that person lived well. Their life mattered. Or maybe in other cases, at other funerals, that person accomplished this and this and that, but what was the point? None of that really matters now that they're gone. 
Funerals have a way of reminding us of, of what's valuable and precious, don't they? They give us perspective. They help us to realize that our lives are short. They help us to put our lives into perspective. They help us to gain a heart of wisdom. But the brevity of life and, and the inevitability of death are not themes we hear much about these days. It used to be that death had an important place in life, that when someone died, people would take time, they would stop for a week or more to mourn together. They would prepare the body for burial and they would bury it themselves. Now we have funeral home staff to protect us from all that unpleasant stuff. Often today, the body of the deceased even, isn't even at our funeral or memorial services. And a day or two after the funeral, most of us are back to life as normal. And a few weeks later, we wonder why the, the loved ones of the deceased can't get on with life. I once heard Billy Graham say that it used to be that our culture repressed sex, but now our culture's great repression is death. We repress death. We, we ignore death. We, we hide death. We avoid death. But the bottom line still is, ignore it or not, that we all die, right? And soon, at that, and if we're going to have a heart of wisdom, we're going to have to number our days. So how do we do that? What's the cause behind that effect? Well, as we go further up in the psalm, we learn starting in verse 1, that this cause involves knowing God and, and making God our dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. To number our days and thus to gain a heart of wisdom, we have to know God. We have to know ourselves in, in light of God. We have to make God our home, our refuge, our trust. Moses did, and in his prayer, he prayerfully reflects with us on what he knows of God. First, in verses 1 to 6, he reflects on God's eternity. God's eternity helps us to number our days, to put our lives into perspective. Moses says, we live 70 years, 80 if we have the strength. Compare that, though, he says, to the Lord who's from everlasting to everlasting. According to the book of Genesis, Methuselah was the oldest man to ever live. Genesis says he lived 600 or 969 years, almost 1,000 years. Imagine that. But Moses says in verse 4 that a thousand years is just like one day for God. And of course, for us who live only 70 or 80 years, our life is not even a day for God. It's more like an hour and three quarters if you do the math. <laughs> but Moses says, no, that's too long. You're not getting the point yet. Your life is more like four hours, a watch in the night. That's a mere 18 minutes from God's perspective. Which means that not one of you is going to live through this 30-minute sermon. <laughs> From God's perspective, that's how short our lives are. 
I've always found it helpful to compare my life to the construction of the great cathedrals of Europe. Take the, uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame in France, for example. It was begun in 1160, and it wasn't completed until 1345. That's like starting a project in 1960, which was 50 years ago. Some of us remember the 60s, some of us don't. So beginning a project in 1960, and, and you're still working on it today, and it won't be done until 2145. 135 years from today. Which means that the architect who designed it and those who laid its foundation are long dead before it's completed. And those who complete it are the great, 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 great grandchildren of those who began it. You could devote your whole life to such a work and, and still only participate in a fraction of the whole project. And that's the way it is with us. The eternal God is doing something big, something long, something huge in this world, and we play only a tiny role in it. God began it long before we came onto the scene. He's been doing it a long time, and, and right now he's, he's at it all around us in, in ways our limited perspective can't even take in. And after we're gone, he'll still be at it until he brings it all to its wonderful conclusion. And when we grasp that, we're on our way to gaining a heart of wisdom, a heart which can guide us in living our lives well for the years that we have. God is eternal. Second, Moses reflects that God is also holy. He reflects on this reality in verses 7 to 11. Moses understood the, the fundamental reality of life on planet earth, a reality which we easily forget, and, and that is that we have all turned away from the one who has made us. The story of human history is the story of creatures in rebellion against their creator. The Bible calls this reality sin. And I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that human depravity and sin is the one Christian doctrine that's empirically verified by thousands of years of human experience. <laughs> Moses, of course, was well aware of this in his own day. He had watched God's own people whom God had singled out from all the peoples of the earth to know God and, and to walk in God's ways. Moses had watched them repeatedly rebel and turn their backs on their God. And that sin eventually culminated in, if you know the Old Testament story, in, in the fateful moment at Kadesh Barnea on the edge of the promised land when God's people refused to trust God with their future. And so they absolutely refused to go into the promised land. As the book of Hebrews put it in chapter 319, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief, our refusal to trust God with our circumstances and our lives, is ultimately what offends God most and separates us from Him. And because God is holy, because He refuses to become an enabler and, and to pretend it doesn't matter, He lets us face the consequences of our sinful unbelief. 
As a result of Israel's lack of trust, their unbelief on the edge of the promised land, God didn't wipe them out immediately, but rather he consigned them to a life of meaninglessness, of killing time, going round and round in the desert. You see, God has a plan. God has good purposes for this world, and he has invited us into those good purposes, but God's purposes will stretch us, and they'll lead us into unsafe territory before we get to the promised land. And so God says, come on with me, but you're going to have to trust me. But many people refuse to trust God. They prefer to live on life's treadmill, going round and round, but never really getting anywhere. I think it was Tony Campolo who defined yuppies as those who have a 60-hour work week and a long commute and arrive home late to their beautiful house in the suburbs, which stands empty most of the time. And stressed and exhausted, they, they, they pop a quick dinner into the microwave, and then they slip into their hot tub for a few minutes before bed, and they say, ah, this is the life. If you're a follower of Christ, though, you know that that's not what God made you for. And you know it's not what Christ redeemed you for. Jesus didn't shed his blood and and call you to himself so that you could live out your days going round and round on life's treadmill, killing time. No, he called you into his great purposes. While describing those who had failed to put their trust in God and were suffering the the numbing consequences, Moses says in verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. And then back in verse 8, he explains why. God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We may want to hide our sins and our unbelief and to pretend that they're not there and to hope that they go away. We may want to live in denial and just tell ourselves that that the way we're living isn't wrong, it's just the new normal. But a holy God takes his searchlight into dark places and and shines that beam on our sins and, and brings them into the light. He tells us we're off track that we're rebelling against him, the only one who can give us real life. He tells us we're, we're failing to trust the one who has made us, the one who knows us, who knows what we're made for and, and knows what, it, what will really satisfy us and make us whole. We're failing to trust him. Well, thankfully, Moses doesn't just leave us there in our sin and, and in hopelessness, and neither does God. Because God is not only eternal, and God is not only holy, but third, in verses 13 and following, Moses assures us that God is also gracious. And I find this last part of Moses' prayer to be astounding. I mean, up to this point, Moses has been pondering the fragility and the brevity of our life and, and the meaningless and the trouble that we endure along the way. And while our sin may have put, this, put us in this situation, Moses is clear that God presides over all this fragility and meaninglessness and this trouble. After a few short li- years of living, Moses says, the eternal God sweeps us away in death. Like grass which springs up in the cool of the morning, but by noon has withered up in the desert sun. 
And the holy God causes us to moan and to die after a short life of trouble and sorrow under his wrath. And so Moses concludes in verse 12 that we should number our days and be wise. And, and it seems like wisdom, as you're reading through the psalm, must just be resigning ourselves to life's meaninglessness and hopelessness and realizing we just deserve it and it's God's will. But then starting in verse 13, it's like Moses shakes himself and he rebels against that idea and he begs God, Relent, Lord! How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants! Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. What a bold prayer in light of all that Moses has just said. How can Moses dare to pray this way? Answer, because he knows God. He knows that God is not only eternal and God is not only holy, but God is also gracious. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. We may deserve trouble, but when we turn back to God, God will, will give us good instead. Imagine if we had to wake up every morning confronted by our sin. Imagine if the dirt of yesterday and the day before was left there at our front door every night. And in the morning when, when we, we got up and walked out the front door, we got filthy all over again in what we'd done in the past. And that happened over and over again. What hope would we have? But no, that's not how God treats us. No, he takes our sins away from us and he casts them as far as the east is from the west. He cleanses us. He, he washes us clean. He gives us a new beginning and a fresh start. He causes his face and his favor to shine on those who don't deserve it. He takes us who deserve only his wrath and he offers us a life which is beautiful and a life which endures. A few weeks ago, I went to a gathering of Christian artists at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. Uh, one of my former professors, Gordon Fee, was speaking. And that night, Fee reminded us that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. All of our talents, all of our abilities, the strength to get up every morning, the opportunities we have, they're all gifts. We didn't do anything to deserve them. But we have a God who delights to give good gifts to people like you and me who don't deserve them. So how do we get in on the good gift of a beautiful and an enduring life? Well, look further up in the psalm for the cause, the ultimate cause the cause of what enables us to know God, to trust God, to make him our dwelling place. And we find this cause in the title of the psalm, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Prayer. That's how we come to know God, to trust God, to make God our dwelling place. As we saw two weeks ago, the psalms are there to teach us how to pray. They're there to teach us that prayer is more than rehearsing a laundry list of requests and, and sending them skyward in hopes that someone is listening. 
Rather, prayer is, is taking our real lives and, and who we really are and connecting those with the real God. Prayer is, is complaining, we saw two weeks ago. Uh, prayer is wrestling with what's broken in us and, and, and broken in this world. Prayer is then remembering who God is and what God has done. Prayer is coming to the place where we trust this God and, and we come to depend on Him and, and we come to know how good He is and, and then we begin to taste the beauty and the enduringness of the life that God would give us. And so ultimately we get to a place of joy and even of praise. So do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to matter? Do you want to live your life well? Do you want to live it beautifully so that it's attractive? Well, follow the advice of the psalm and of the wise man Moses who prayed this prayer. And now here's the challenge for us as a church. I've titled this psalm, A Prayer for Dark Times. Not only was this prayer prayed in a dark time of Moses' life, but many scholars believe that this prayer found its place among God's people in a significant way during another dark time, the time of, of Israel's exile, when Israel had lost everything they'd worked for and were captives in a foreign land. And they were wondering if they dared to hope that there would ever be a brighter day in the future again. A prayer for dark times. Sometimes we have to hit bottom. We have to face our mortality head on or we have to get fed up with the rat race before we're ready to learn the lesson that this prayer is trying to teach us. Well, lately, um, the elders of CBC have been discussing the future of CBC and we've been doing some soul searching about the future of our church. A number of years ago, 2004, I think it was, the uh, leaders of CBC felt that CBC had plateaued. I don't know if you can see that curve. Eve has it in his notes somewhere. He pulled it out. And uh, the elders were wrestling with the fact that this is a normal growth curve for any organization, for any church, and that if nothing is done, back in 2004, the leadership was realizing we might start to decline. Well, fast forward today to today, and that seems to be the case, that we're slowly shrinking as a church. We're on the backside of that growth curve. We're just entering it. Maybe this is our dark time. In light of that, I know my longing for CBC is well expressed in verse 17 of our psalm. May the favor, the naom of the Lord our God rests upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Don't let CBC and all of the efforts of so many who have, have uh, put so much effort into it over the years fade away, God. We want to endure. Well, how will that happen? Well, we're going to need a heart of wisdom. That's one reason as we prepare to think about our future as a church, we think that bringing in an outside facilitator with a lot of experience in these things will bring some additional wisdom, and that'll be a good idea. But ultimately, where will wisdom come from, whether through that facilitator, through us, a combination of the two? Ultimately, we'll have to number our days. 
We'll have to realize that CBC's 40 years of history thus far are just a moment in grand, a God's grand work. We best not think too highly of our accomplishments or, or depend too much on our abilities or what has worked in the past. All that's worth nothing if we don't make God our dwelling place. If we don't increasingly come to know God and to trust Him in His eternity and His holiness and His grace. Well, how will we know Him like this? How will we express our trust in Him? Well, we're going to have to pray. We're going to have to pray. We're going to have to pray with all the rebellious tenacity of verse 13 of our psalm. We're going to have to beg God who gives good gifts to those who don't deserve them. We're going to have to ask God to make us what He wants us to be. Because our future is in God's hands. God will build His church in this world. God will accomplish His plans in this world. And He'll bring them to completion. And if we want to have a place in that, let's not be presumptuous in assuming that we deserve that place. But rather, let's beg for it in prayer. For God is merciful. And He gives good gifts to those who don't deserve them. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wisdom of an old man who had walked with you through many years, through good and bad, who stayed close to you, and who on the end, at the, near the end of his life could reflect back with wisdom and pass that on to us in a world sorely lacking in wisdom, sorely lacking in the knowledge of how to live a life which is beautiful and which endures. And I pray for us as individuals and for us as a church that we would long and aspire and discover and become the answer to that prayer. Through Jesus who makes it possible for us, who's given us your mercy toward us who don't deserve it. Amen.